All right, so we're going to continue our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And specifically, I'll be discussing Mark 2, 1 through 12 today. And so this is the passage that's about Jesus healing the paralytic. And so the purpose of this sermon series is to narrate the identity and teachings of Christ, as well as present and defend Jesus' universal calling to discipleship. So that's kind of the the goals for the sermon series about going through the Gospel of Mark. And so the first thing we should probably do when talking about a passage is, you know, read it, right? That's probably a good idea that we all are on the same page and we actually read Scripture. And so we're going to read the passage in its entirety, and then we're going to kind of break it down bit by bit. So first of all, uh, I use the NRSV. Um, we typically have the ESV in our, uh, on the shelf right there and stuff like that. So if you want to use that, or you can use your phone. Uh, but I'll be reading from that, uh, and then we'll continue on with what it's talking about. So when he returned to Capernaum after some days, this is referring to Jesus, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, Stand up, take take your mat, and go home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So this is the passage we're discussing. And so at first glance, um, I thought I'd start doing something like this, where like when I read the passage, these are my initial thoughts when I read it. Try to give you kind of the background of how I'm just reading scripture without the commentary yet, um, kind of what appears to me. And the first thing that I notice is that people are following and gathering and listening to Christ. So it's not just like Christ is proclaiming these things and everyone's like, oh, just some crazy lunatic or whatever. Like, no, people are listening to the point that there are so many, in fact, the room, um, there was enough room in the house where Christ was saying. The other thing I saw is that another group is so determined and believe in the claims that Christ has made that they bring someone who happens to be paralyzed to be healed by him. So it's more so than just people listening to what he's saying. They actually think this person has the ability to heal, the ability to change the, kind of the unnatural state to the natural state. And so Jewish priests, um, and this is what I think is interesting, the Jewish priests that are there, not even allowed, it says in their hearts. So they weren't saying these things aloud. They weren't like complaining amongst a group of people. No, it was in their hearts. So Christ read their minds, are troubled by the authority that Christ claims to have and that he would shortly after display displaying that not only can he heal somebody that seems to have um, some form of paralysis, uh, he doesn't just heal that person, but also he can forgive sins. This is a big deal, especially to to the priest of the Jewish people that were there. And so as we break this down, um, the background and kind of previous sermons is this, is that this is the last healing of the four that we've read so far. Um, But the thing is to keep in mind that it's both a healing and a controversy that's happening in this passage. And so like the first two healings, it takes place in Capernaum. 
And Capernaum, just for reference, is a town on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. We can see that in Matthew. That's actually supposed to say 9, 1 through 8. Uh, instead, it just looks like a smiley face sort of a thing. And then uh, it can also be found in Luke 5, 17 through 26. But Mark makes a claim here that I think is interesting. Um, that when not in the wilderness, he says Christ's home is Capernaum. He says at his house, at his home. Though he knows he is from Nazareth, which we can see in Mark 1, 9. 1, 9. And one of the reasons for this may be that this is where Peter and Andrew evidently lived. Um, so this could be why he's describing it as like kind of his home base, that this is his house. Um, and you can see that in Mark uh, 121 and 29. And so when we read uh, Mark 2.4, we hear this part about the crowds make passage uh, to Jesus in a normal way impossible. So just walking up or going to the house couldn't happen. So a group of people, uh, the four decide to lower the paralytic through the roof, likely made of thatch and mud. So I found an image, um, not perfect, obviously, because I don't know if you know this, uh, we, we really don't have too many, or me personally, I don't have too many pictures of like what houses at that time would have looked like. So a quick little Google, Google search, this is what it would have likely looked like, the roof that they would have opened up to lower the person down. So the thatch and mud, mostly sticks and stuff like that, something that you could gradually pull apart and you could lower someone down through. So it's not like they were like ripping off shingles or things like that. Uh, but that's what it would have looked like. And so when we read these passages, um, especially in Mark, uh, and especially in healings or miracles, we see the word faith is a common factor in many of Jesus' healings, that it's the faith that heals people. It's not necessarily the act alone. It's not the right words that they say. We see this in, in Acts, actually. We discussed this in our Bible study today, that um, there's a group of arguably occult people that were like Jewish people that also combined paganism and magic and stuff like that. And they heard that, hey, in the name of Jesus, you can cast out demons and stuff. So they're going around going like, okay, if we say this, it'll work. Well, spoiler alert, it doesn't. But this strange thing happens where Paul's handkerchief is healing people. So something that isn't even saying anything is healing, whilst these other people that are saying these words, nothing is happening. In fact, they're actually getting harmed. And so there's a significance of, of Paul's faith and what he's surrendering to and what he's walking with. The fact that even his handkerchief was healing people because it was the will of God, that it wasn't him that healed people. It wasn't him saying the right things. It was God literally working through him. We see this with Peter as well, his shadow healing people. We see this with Christ when the woman grabs his robes, his azuzio power, literally his God essence. He felt drained from him and pulled from him. So there's a significance to having faith in healing. And so the phrase he said to the paralytic is repeated. This is something from, um, if you're looking at it from like a scholasticism or from like interpreting Mark as a writer, this is one of the compositional techniques that he uses. And he uses this in multiple different places. And so I made some notes there of all the places where he used this writing style. And so what he does here is he's inserting a different storyline in the midst of continuing another story. So the initial story that we have here Mark 2, 1 through 5, and verse 12 is Jesus, the crowds, and the paralytic. The secondary story, or when it's inserted again, or a second story is introduced to the previous story, happens in verse 6 through 12, where it's Jesus, the crowd, the paralytic, and now the priest. And so you might be like, okay, you're just picking apart stuff, you're being a little too analytical. No, this matters. And why this matters is that miracles are more than the act. In this case, the act of the paralytic being healed was not the sole purpose of the miracle. Mark interjecting the second scene or story tells us, as well as the audience that was present during this healing, that Christ not only has the power to heal, but also has the authority to forgive sins, 
as well as the power to know thoughts. We know this because in 2.6 it says, the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So Christ was literally know, knew their thoughts, knew what was going on in their minds. Not only does he heal the person that happens to be paralyzed, but he also draws a deeper perspective into the sense of not only can I heal the physical state, I can heal the eternal state. I can heal, I can save you, I can forgive sins. That he had all authority. It was not just about healing the physical ailment that was at hand. And so this concept of miracles being more than an act is littered throughout all of Scripture as it draws us into eternal perspective and admiration for God that is beyond the act itself being worshipped. So in short, it calls for us to be open to God's will and healing or perspective that restores us beyond or with our physical condition. So for us, my question is this, is that are our prayers and requests for the miraculous bound to the current condition? Or are we open to a perspective and healing that transcends the physical, that can heal us and all of us, our mind, body, and soul? God wants to restore all of us and not just the physical. This is something that is very evident here in this passage, that as much as he cared to heal the paralytic, he wanted to show a greater perspective, that he can heal from sins, he can heal all things, and he doesn't just choose to restore our physical well-being, but wants to restore all of us, not just one part of us. So in verses 2 through 6, or 6 through 8, rather, this is the first appearance of scribes in the gospel, so this term scribes. And there was a group there, um, and this group, which would have been the scribes, was referred to as like experts in Jewish law. And so they charge him, or charge Christ, with blasphemy. And so this is the first time we have in Mark uh, that Christ is accused of this. But this would also be the charge the leaders of Jerusalem would fault Christ during his trial. So this is the first time he's accused of being someone that's, you know, uh, speaking with blasphemy. Uh, and, you know, Christ, and what's interesting in this passage is at the end, you hear that all of them glorified God. So as the reader and someone interpreting scripture, even hearing this, that wasn't just the crowds or the paralytic, that was the priest as well. Everyone glorified God. So even though they were at a place at this passage where they made these accusations and then came to, you know, understand and say like, oh, hey, let's glorify God over what this man is doing, what Christ is doing. Later on, a different set of Jewish leaders would use the same claim in, trial, in the trial for Christ to be crucified. So it's interesting that we hear at the very beginning, then we also see it towards the end. And that the charge was that, that it was blasphemy, that he was saying stuff that, I mean, the irony, right? We believe Christ to be God, and they're accusing him of pretty much speaking wrongly about God. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, the thing that we see in 2.8 is what I was mentioning earlier about Christ's power to know thoughts. And so we read this in 2.8. At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions amongst themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? The fact that Christ knows the hearts and the condition of people. We see this throughout most of the Gospels in general. The idea of when you look at a woman lustfully and things like that, the idea of what's in your heart. The idea of what's, what's really your being. Not just what you're declaring, but where your eyes look. How you perceive the world around you. How you make judgment that matters to God that he sees the heart of the issue. And I think oftentimes we can play off that, hey, we're a good Christian, or we can make it look like we're a good Christian, but at the end of the day, he knows our hearts. And he doesn't care that we look the part, or we look well as Christians. He cares just as much about, well, is your heart really following him? Is it really joined with him? He doesn't just want to restore our finances. He doesn't just want to restore our physical well-being. He wants to restore our whole being and make it glorify him and like him. 
So in 2.9, we have this. We have a problem, or what would seem to be a contradiction. So in Mark 2.9, Jesus parallels physical healing with the forgiveness of sins, confirming the correlation he elsewhere denies in the New Testament, that sin causes certain infirmities. So in John 9, 1 through 3, we have a man is accused of being blind because of sin, but Christ argues otherwise. Now, and I have it even in here, this is a discussion for another time, but we must be aware of these or be honest about these perceived inconsistencies and be willing to work with them. And we'll find this throughout many different things in Scripture. Sometimes it's, was it a feeding of this many? Was it a feeding of this many? And the numbers are off. Or maybe it's the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. You know, there's these things that we would look at, and so oftentimes people that will encounter will say, like, well, the Bible's inaccurate. Look at how the same story was told differently. There's a reason for that. And so instead of just saying, hey, this is what I think about that, I want to challenge us as a church to deal with this. we got to wrestle with this. And it's important that we wrestle with this and put forth effort, because if not, we will not be able to provide an opportunity to heal the hearts of those who would question, like Christ does for these priests. Oftentimes we read this passage, and we're just like Christ just healed the person that was the paralytic but he's also healing the hearts or giving an opportunity for the priest present to have their hearts being healed. He does the same thing when he is crucified, when he recites from Psalms and he recites scripture. He's saying it for the audience. Literally the people that are chanting, kill him, hang him, he's speaking in a way that they can understand. He's extending grace and mercy to them as well, and the same as the thief on the cross and to all of us. It's important that we study these things and we're aware of these inconsistencies. And not so we have an answer and so we can sound intelligent or smart, but know that we can be open to it too, that we can wrestle through it with each other, that we can say like, well, maybe it's not contradicting. Maybe it's actually saying the same thing. And see how it's saying the same thing. See how it's a different audience. See how the reason why that would be written that way. And oftentimes you'll find that people are like blown away and like, holy crap, there is a lot to it. It isn't just this dumb contradiction. There's actually a reason for that. And so I would challenge us to go through that. And so in verses 10 through 12, we have the term son of man. And so son of man in Mark is a term that is often used as a self-reference by Jesus uh, to allude to the special powers of Christ, like reading the minds of people or the authority to forgive sins. It could also carry an apocalyptic overtone. And those are all the different passages within Mark and also in Daniel where we see this kind of son of man reference leading to something apocalyptic. Immediately, which our sermon series we've, we talked about even in the beginning, is like this is a word that Mark uses a lot, this call to action. And so it's a favorite phrase in Mark that we will not see again, though, until Mark 3.6 in the final controversy healing story that we will have. In this instance, the man was healed right away and went. And all of them, and that's actually a typo, it's not supposed to be all of them, all glorified God, all of them glorified God. But uh, in this instance, this is the immediacy that's happening is that Christ literally says, get up and walk, and it happens. And just then, the priests that were questioning in their hearts, as well as the crowds, as well as the person that was paralyzed, and the people let him down, all glorified God. This immediacy of them recognizing that this was the Lord. This immediacy in recognizing that this was God, or this was something out of the ordinary that was beyond what they had seen before. And so we may be asking ourselves, so what? What's the point of this passage then? What can we gain from this passage? How does this apply to us today? Well, an important thing is that Jesus has the ability to know our hearts and desires to heal us beyond what is right in front of us. Whatever we are currently going through, or maybe what our scope is fixated on, Christ wants to not just heal that, restore that, make that better, but wants to take it to the heart of the issue. 
wants to restore all of us, not just that specific thing. And so Christ has the authority to forgive sins. We hear this in this passage. Sometimes we miss it because we're so like, oh, he healed the paralyzed man. There's something even greater here that's happening or is at play. That it's not just that he can heal paralysis, he can forgive sins. This is miraculous. That is part of the miracle. This is a miracle today. And we cannot deny the grace and peace that Christ freely gives us when we place our faith in him. And we need to thank him for that miracle. The other thing I want us to walk away with is scripture can be messy and doesn't always seem to make sense to us. We see this, how Mark says this, or seems to say one thing, and John seems to say something else about sin and its relation to illness. However, we need to put forth the effort to understand, not for the sake of knowledge, but so that we can heal those around us as we pursue Christ through scripture. And so a story of this would be Life on Tap this week. Um, there's two gentlemen. One, uh, actually both I met at a coffee shop. One works at a coffee shop, and the other one I met at a coffee shop when Chelsea used to work there. And so we'll start with that guy first. He grew up Mennonite, uh, and his family has now left the church, left the Mennonite church, and he actually left the church entirely before they did. Um, he just had a lot of problems with the idea of how can you uphold peace and things of that nature, but then as Christians do this. Or how can you say you love, but then you judge? You know, he had a lot of problems, legitimate questions. Like, it wasn't just, you know, the uh, typical um, mean atheist that just wants to have an argument. No, like, he, in his heart, he wanted to believe in God. He just couldn't because he saw what was going on. But through the years and stuff like that, when Chelsea used to work at Mugswigs, I would go there, and I would sit there and talk to people. Usually it was about music or something nerdy like Magic or Yu-Gi-Oh or something like that. But most of the time, the conversations would evolve into something, whether it be philosophy, theology, or hey, I heard you're a pastor. How are you a pastor and you look like that? And we have these conversations. And it's through talking with him over the years and stuff like that and discussing with him saying, yeah, I, I'm not okay with the Crusades. Like, maybe there were some good ones, but for the most part, the church messed up, and that's not cool. And he was kind of taken aback because it wasn't an answer that I gave him. It was more along the idea of that, like, I didn't try to defend something that I didn't hold to be true or hold to be a good representation of our faith or the idea of how the LGBTQ community has been treated by the church, or black people have been treated by the church, or women have been treated by the church. I didn't try to defend this stuff just because it was my faith. You know, I was working through that, and not that I even had any answers, but willing to have that dialogue. So fast forward to, what is this, six years now? He's now someone that regularly attends Life on Tap with us. And just this week, it was one of those things that, where I was reminded of the miracle of the forgiveness of sins and someone coming to know Christ, where he said, I don't like using the word Christian because of all the connotations and all the negatives that you know our culture has, has seen from Christians, but he's like, it is what I am. So, And we got to have this dialogue about like, yeah, maybe the term has been kind of um, messed up, and maybe we've done a lot of wrong, but we've also done a lot of good, and you can take hope in the fact that the people you're surrounded with also believe this and are pushing towards this thing. This then led to him afterwards having a conversation with someone that overheard Chris and I at a different coffee shop talking that happened to be like, hey, you guys are talking about this, and he just walked on over and just like poured something like almost prophetic into our lives, you know, and just was speaking from his heart, all because he overheard what we were talking about. There's something miraculous about when God transforms your life. There's something miraculous that happens when he forgives of sin. It becomes your life. You want to declare it. You want to discuss it. And it's not in this overbearing way where it's like, oh, you know, turn and burn. No, it's not that. It's, the, it's quite the opposite. It's that because Christ has loved you, we are called to share that to the world around us. And so I want to focus on this as well, is that it's important that God can heal our physical ailments. 
And he absolutely can. I, I don't believe, like Jefferson, so Thomas Jefferson, a lot of people may not know this, but he had the Jefferson Bible where he took out the miracles because he said, surely that's fake. That, that doesn't exist. And so there, you can look it up. It's called the Jefferson Bible. Many miracles are omitted and taken out because he didn't like them. Yeah, literally cut out. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I don't believe that. I absolutely believe that Christ did these miraculous things of physical healing. But I also want us to point us towards the aspect of that when someone know, gets to know Christ or when we have accepted Christ, that's also miraculous. The forgiveness of sin is miraculous. And I want us to reflect on that. And Chris will take us into communion in a little bit. But I want us to reflect on that as like that peace that you felt in that moment, that transcending understanding that you don't know, where you feel absolutely loved, but you feel absolutely sinful and it's confusing, but it's magnificent and it's glorious. That is miraculous. This ability to be restored from sin, this ability to have the spirit indwell within us, God himself indwelling in us, that is miraculous. And so that's what I want us to leave with today or to reflect on with today from this passage is that the miracle of our faith in Christ is so often overlooked and not valued but it's the very thing that bestows any healing thereon after with this paralytic. Your faith has healed you. This idea that it was more than just his physical healing. Christ could do that, but it went beyond that. And so glorify God like the priest, the paralytic, and the crowds did in this passage. Praise him for the life he gives us and the life that he brings us to the healing of those around us. Live in a way that the forgiveness of sins that's in your life brings about life to the world around us, not fear. Live in a way that brings about restoration, not condemnation. This is, we have the miraculous. Christ literally indwells, the spirit indwells in us to the point that even later on in scripture we hear about, you'll do even greater miracles. Do we believe that? Do we hold on to that? Because this is what Christ charges us with as his church, to go forth and make disciples, to heal people in mind. We're called to do these things. And we're not limited to just, you know, showing up on Sunday and singing some songs and stuff like that. No, transcends this building. It transcends our lifetime. The beautiful thing is we get to be a part of that. And so I would implore you guys to pursue that. I would implore you during this time of communion when Chris brings it up um, that you would reflect on that upon the words that Chris also will say that give thanks for the miracle of salvation. Give thanks for the miracle of grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sins. This is what our, the, the hinge of our faith is on this. Anything miraculous that we do, any grace that we receive is based upon us surrendering it and um, honoring and glorifying what God has done, that he was born, you know, in, in a way that he's fully man and fully God. Like, that, that's crazy, that he lived a perfect life. We forget that. We talk about the death of Christ. We talk about him coming back, but he lived a perfect life. He walked with us. He suffered as we do. So he's the person that can relate to us more than anybody else. He gave that freely. You know, he chose, he willed it to be crucified on our behalf, to forgive of sins. Uh, and then he poured out his spirit so that not only could we be forgiven of sins, but we could actually know his voice. We could walk with him, that his truth would literally indwell within us. And that eventually, even not in this lifetime, but eventually it would all be restored. Reflect on that. Give thanks for that miracle. So I'm going to pray real quick. Chris will bring up communion, and we'll participate in that together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that we can gather and worship, Lord. I thank you that we are able to do so without persecution. Lord, I pray that you would be with some of the many nations right now where persecution is happening. Lord, I pray that you'd bring hope, you'd give faith and healing where there needs to be, and not just for our congregation, Lord, but for the world, Lord. 
I pray that we'd be a group whose hands heal and don't harm, Lord. I pray that we are fastening our arms to hug instead of beat down. Lord, I pray that you would be with us and guide us, give us vision, give us wisdom. Let us be guided by you. May we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, Lord, and the humility to shut up at times. Lord, we thank you for this. It's your name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.